say good morning to you all once again. We're thankful that God has touched each and every one of us this morning, allowed us to wake up from our sleep and see this new and unpromised day. Thankful that he allowed us to come out this morning to assemble. Thankful for each and every one of you here this morning, participating in the assembly, singing songs of praise, listening to our prayers, edifying and encouraging one another. Thankful for you. Thankful for our visitors that are here. We recognize there are many places that you could have been this morning, but you've chosen to be here with the saints that meet at La Prada. And we hope that you are encouraged today. There is a word from the Lord. And we pray that each and every one of us, each and every one of you is hearing or benefited by being here. And at the end of this assembly, You'll feel that you have profited by being a part of this assembly today. Romans 15 and 4 says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. As New Testament Christians, the New Testament is our guide. It is our guide and it is what we live by. It is what we look to in order to understand salvation, the great salvation that God has made available to us by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. However, that does not mean that there is no value to the study of the Old Testament. This passage that I just read tells us about things that were written aforetime, things that were written in the, New, in the Old Testament that were recorded for us to study from and to learn from. And we can look to the Old Testament, and we can look at how God dealt with his people then, and look at how people who lived then, how they lived through their trials, their ups and their downs, their times of faithfulness and their time of faithlessness, and we can learn from those lessons, and we can identify principles from those lessons that can help us in our life today. And so since God has these things recorded for us to learn we have the responsibility to study them and to learn from them. And so this morning, we will do just that. We're going to look to the Old Testament this morning. We're going to look the account, at the account of the Jews and how God promised to give them the promised land. And we're going to look at how God gave them specific instructions or commands that they were to follow when they took possession of this land. However, we're going to see and we're going to read how they were not fully obedient to God's commands. Not being fully obedient obviously means they were disobedient. Obedient in some ways, but not obedient in all ways. And we're going to read that there were consequences that they had to deal with because of their disobedience to God's commands. So we're going to look at some of those consequences that they dealt with, and we're going to seek to make application to our lives today. Some things that can help us. So, beginning in our message, we're going to look to Genesis. We can reflect on Genesis. In Genesis 12, where God spoke to Abraham. And God told Abraham to leave his home and to go to a land that God would show him. And that land was Canaan. Canaan is what God said he was going to show Abraham, and he led Abraham to that land, and he told Abraham he was going to give him numerous descendants. 
like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore, he would have numerous descendants. God promised to make a great nation of Abraham and that all the families of the earth would be blessed because of him. These promises that God made to Abraham were repeated to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then again to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then many, many, many generations later, Abraham's numerous descendants, as that promise came to fruition, or was still coming to fruition, we find that they were in bondage down in Egypt. The book of Exodus tells us this bondage, and it tells us that in due time, God raised up Moses. He raised up Moses to deliver his people from Egypt, from the hands of Pharaoh. And God did that. He, he delivered them miraculously, destroying the, the army of Egypt, brought his people across the Red Sea on dry ground, and then brought them to Mount Sinai. It is Mount, at Mount Sinai where God gave his people, the Jews, the law. There at Mount Sinai, they committed to a covenant relationship with God. And they pledged to obey the law that God had given to them. And so after receiving the law, God then, as we can read in Numbers, proceeded to lead them to the promised land for them to ultimately take possession of the land that he had promised to give to Abraham, their ancestor, but to them. It is in Exodus 23 where we can read where God promised to his people. He promised them his protection. He promised to protect them as they took possession of this promised land because it wasn't empty. It wasn't an empty land. People lived there. It was inhabited by the Canaanites. There were several strong cities that existed there already, stronghold cities. But God said he was going to send an angel ahead before them, before his people, to guide them into the land that was inhabited by the Canaanites. You see, the Canaanites worshipped and they served other gods, other idols. They had evil practices that were sinful, and their sin had risen to a point that God was going to remove them from the land. And so that is what we see happening here. It is in Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5, where God makes clear that he is allowing the Jews, he is allowing his people, the Hebrews, to take possession of the promised land, not because of their own righteousness, not because of their pure hearts or because they were such good people, but because of the wickedness of the Canaanites that lived in the land and also to fulfill his promise to Abraham. So God commanded the Hebrews when they took possession of the land, he said that they should not bow down to worship or serve any of these idols, any of these false gods that the Canaanites embraced. They should not embrace any of these evil practices that they saw them participate in. They should not enter into any relationships, any covenants, intermarriage, anything with the Canaanites that resided there. God did not want his people in relationships with the Canaanites. God knew exactly what his people needed. He knew the power, he knew the temptation of an evil influence. He knew his own people. If they lived around, if they mingled around, in due time they would embrace 
these evil practices. He knew that they would defile themselves and they would become just as evil as the Canaanites were. So God directed them. He directed his people to utterly overthrow the Canaanites, to remove them from the land. But God also gave a warning. He gave a warning of the consequences that would occur if his people failed to obey his commands. If they failed to drive the Canaanites out of the land, if they failed and proceeded to establish relationships, covenants, let the people remain in the land, God said he was going to allow those Canaanites to be pricks in their eyes, thorns in their sides, and he would allow the Canaanites to vex or oppress his people. He warned them, if you don't obey my commands, I'm going to pluck you out of this land. I'm going to remove you from this promised land that was given to you. And he says he's going to scatter his people from one end of the earth to the other. Yes, the blessings of obedience to God's commands are numerous. But as we can read right here, the consequences of disobedience are also numerous. And they are hard. It was clear. God's will was for his people to obey his commands. And so as God led his people to take possession of the land, he knew that the Canaanites shouldn't be driven out all at once. It was a vast land. And if he drove them all out at once, he knew, the Bible says, that the land would become desolate and overrun by wild animals. So God determined to drive the inhabitants out a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time so his people could come in take possession, drive up more, take possession. Slowly taking possession of all of the land. That was God's plan. And so with Joshua's leadership in the book of Joshua, we can read of God fighting for his people, leading them in battle, and we can read where they finally start to take possession of the promised land. In Joshua 5, we can read of their first entrance into the promised land. It says here, And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites which were on the side of the Jordan westward. And all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in, any, in them anymore because of the children of Israel. So from this reading, we understand and we see that God stopped the Jordan River from flowing to allow his people to cross and enter into the promised land. And when the Canaanites heard of this, when they heard that the river stopped flowing, and that all of God's people, numbering in the millions, crossed into the land, the Bible says that their hearts melted, melted in fear. They no longer had the courage to fight against God's people. They were doomed. Before God's people even had to lift a sword and battle, their enemies were already mentally defeated. God was truly with his people. All they had to do, now make it sound simple, all they had to do was to obey his commands. And so if we continue to read in Joshua, we see the conquest of the land and how it all started there with the city of Jericho. Jericho was a strong, walled city, and God fought for his people. We could read how God told them to circle around the city for seven days, and ultimately, 
On that seventh day, the walls of the city came down. It was vulnerable, and they were able to attack and take possession of Jericho. And God continued to fight for his people as they went on, victory after victory after victory, taking possession of the promised land a little bit at a time. I say this to say that their confidence in God should have been high. Their trust in God, their faith in God, seeing all that he did for their ancestors and bringing them out of Egypt, delivering them from Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai, giving them a law, entering into a covenant with them. They were his, uh, he was their God, they were his people, bringing them to the promised land, giving them victory after victory. There should have been no reason to doubt God. They had no reason to neglect the commands or neglect to follow the commands that God has set before them. For God has done all that he said he would do, and they simply needed to continue on and do their part. Before Joshua's death, chapter 23 of the book of Joshua records Joshua encouraging his people, encouraging them to be obedient to God's will. And Joshua reminded them, he said that God had fought for them, and driving out the inhabitants of the land. He told them, do not get caught up in the practices of the Canaanites. Don't get mingled up with them. He warned them if they looked to any of the Canaanite idols, looked to the gods that they worship, if they established relationships with the Canaanites, if they intermarried with them, if they had covenants with them, entered partnerships with them, that God would no longer fight for them. God would no longer drive out the inhabitants out of the land for them. But instead, God would allow the Canaanites to remain as snares and traps for them. The Canaanites would be a pain in their side and thorns in their eyes until they perished from the good land that God had given them. Once again, the warning of not being fully obedient to God's command is reiterated. However, as we will see in just a moment in the book of Judges, a dangerous pattern starts to develop. A pattern of disobedience. Here in Judges 1 and 19, we can start to read of this pattern of disobedience. And as it says, and the Lord was with Judah. And he drove, out, he drove, drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Here it says that the Lord was with Judah, the tribe of Judah. But Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. We know that God was with them in battle. We know that God overturned a whole army of Egypt. These chariots of iron were no match for God. But we read here that the tribe of Judah failed to accomplish what they were supposed to do. And sadly, what we read, what started here at verse 19 was just the beginning of a terrible trend. For verse 21 says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. And reading on, it speaks of the tribe of Manasseh. Neither did they drive out the inhabitants of the land that they had. And in verse 28, it talks about when Israel was strong, when they had strength, that they did not drive out those who were in their land. They did not do what they were supposed to do. And it says, neither did the tribe of Ephraim, neither did Zebulun, neither did Asher, neither did the Asher Asherites, 
neither did Naphtali. All these tribes, for some reason, up to this point, had been taking possession of the land, but for some reason they decided to stop driving out the inhabitants of the land, allowing them to hang around, allowing them to live in the land. Over and over and over, we read here of the tribes of Israel failing to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. And not only did they not drive them out, we can read that they started to make covenants with them. They started to make agreements with them. They started to make relationships with them, which was direct disobedience to God's commands. But why? Why would they neglect to follow through on what God had commanded? Especially when God was with them. God was driving the people out, giving them the victory. Something happened. Something changed. I would say they eased up. They slacked off. They took possession of most of the land. I mean, they, they were taking possession of the land, but they failed to drive out the inhabitants, inhabitants of various pockets of the land. Now think about it, and I think that perhaps the reason that they've done so much, they have possession of most of the land, what are these small little pockets? little pockets of resistance. Perhaps they reasoned that the sin of the Canaanites wasn't that bad and these people were no harm to keep them around. We could read where they even enslaved some of them. So probably they reasoned, hey, we can benefit from this, let them stay here, they'll serve us. Perhaps they underestimated the consequences of not following through on God's commands. I mean, when the first tribe failed to drive them out, there was no immediate uh, punishment from God, so perhaps, okay, well, no harm there, keep going. Perhaps their disobedience seemed to have very few consequences at first. But over time, we know and we understand that their disobedience will lead to consequences that they never would have imagined. Picking up in Judges 2, we can read of God speaking to the people about their disobedience and letting them know that there will be consequences. It says, and an angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. And their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. God had made a covenant with this people early on, but it required obedience, full obedience. Yet, as we've read, what the people offered back to God was a partial obedience, which is disobedience. The consequence of disobedience was that God would not drive, up, drive the Canaanites out of the land. And upon hearing this, we read here that the Bible says that they lifted up their voices and they wept. They realized the error of their ways. And what we read here is sincere regret. Sincere regret is on display. Yet despite this weeping, despite this mourning, despite their heavy hearts that they may have had, despite the regrets, the people did not change. They persisted in their evil. They continued to worship the idols of the Canaanites. They continued to turn from God, a whoring after idols, 
they continued to embrace the evil of the Canaanites. And because of this, God allowed them to deal with the consequences of their disobedience. And so as you'd expect, with no change, with no repentance, over time things continued to get worse and worse. The Bible says in Judges 10 that a generation of people arose up that did not know the Lord. The time went on, and they continued to drift further and further away from God. Since this generation did not know all that God had done for them, the generation continued to get worse. However, after so many years, so many years of disobedience, God would allow them ultimately to be conquered by the Assyrians and to lose the land of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah would be attacked by the Babylonians and they would be carried off, and many would be carried off in exile to Babylon. And I look at this and I, I look at this account of God's people. And it's so sad. So sad that God's promise to Abraham so many years ago, his promise to give his descendants this land, ended up with his descendants losing the land because of their disobedience. Their refusal to drive the Canaanites completely out of the land, their refusal to obey God's commands and not establishing relationships with the people of the land ultimately impacted Israel for many generations to come. So what? What does this brief history about the Hebrews obtaining and losing the promised land mean for us today? What are we to learn from it? What does it mean for us today? As we read in Romans 15 and 4 about the importance of God's word and the writings of old being preserved for us to look to and learn from, their example is recorded for us today. And we have seen how God dealt with them and we will now seek to learn from their example so that we hopefully cannot commit similar sins today. And I think as we look at a few ways that they fell short, we can find some parallels for our own lives today to help us. So just as God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, and he led them to the promised land, the Bible tells us that we, we as Christians, we have been delivered from the power of darkness, and we have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. And it's because of the blood of Christ. Because of our obedience to his commands, we have been added to the church, the kingdom of God, and we have hope for eternal life in heaven. Each one of us that is in the kingdom of God has repented of our sins, and we strive to live faithful to the commands of God. But despite this, as Hebrews 12 and 1 says, we have besetting sins that hinder us in our walk with God. We have bad habits. We have evil practices, sinful practices that we continue perhaps to hold on to, maybe without even realizing it, or maybe we do. But there are some things perhaps we hold on to that God expects us to put out of our lives. Let us consider what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul teaches here the need for us to put to death, to put an end to, to eradicate some things that are in our lives. When you were buried in that water in baptism, you died to sin. 
don't know if you realize that, but the Bible says you die to sin. It no longer has power over you. These earthly sinful behaviors, these practices perhaps that we hold on to are not fitting for you now. They are not appropriate for the Christian to be practicing. And if you allow them to remain in your life, the Bible says here that it will bring about the wrath of God. God expects each and every one of us to look to his word and to continue to grow. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of his word, the expectation is that we are continually changing, continually growing, continually becoming more and more like Christ. And so if you are stagnant, if you're not growing, if you can look back just six months from now, a year from now, two years in the past and not see growth, you're moving backwards. You're not sitting still. You're moving backwards. And that is not pleasing to God. If we are failing to grow, we are failing to deal with the areas in our lives that need work. If we've decided that those areas are not worth the fight, it's not worth the effort, that we can live with this small sin and just accept it as normal, that's a problem. There are areas in your life that you know need to be dealt with and you've chosen not to. That's a problem. It's not only a problem, but it is disobedience to God's command. And there are consequences that go along with disobedience to God's commands. There are likely areas in your life that you need to deal with. Areas where there is sin that maybe you just haven't chosen to address. And perhaps you're so used to it you're so used to these practices that it's just become a normal part of life. It's just part of you. It's just who you are. Well, I encourage you to pray to God that God gives you the vision to see. Gives you the vision to see these areas in your life that need work. And I pray that you have the courage and the willingness to do something about it. Let's now look to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be unequally yoked. This concept of being unequally yoked looks back to the Old Testament when the old law was given by God. And God commanded them not to yoke together unequal animals. Deuteronomy 22 and 10 speaks specifically, as it says, they were not to yoke together an ox and a donkey. In the context of this passage, God is speaking on relationships. Paul writes here that Christians should not be unequally yoked or in close relationships with unbelievers. As someone who is walking in the light, who is charged to be the light of the world, what fellowship do you have with someone that has chosen to walk in darkness? Belial, in verse 15, here is a name for Satan. So we ask here, what accord? What agreement does Christ have with Satan? And the answer is none, nothing. Just as Christ had nothing to do with Satan, we should be careful when we yoke ourselves with unbelievers 
and close relationships, for there is no accord that we have as God's people with people who have chosen not to be obedient to God's will. Now let us establish here that Paul is not teaching that we should abandon all our earthly relationships with non-Christians. For if we did that, we would never have the opportunity to be a light before them. We'd never have an opportunity to be that salt, that light, or be a positive influence in the world. Now Paul is speaking here of close relationships, close friendships, dating relationships, close relationships with people with different beliefs, different values, different morals than we find that are prescribed for the Christian. Yet in these relationships, they have an influence over you because of the nature of your close relationship. Eventually, maybe not at the beginning, but eventually, one of you is going to have the influence over the other. Eventually, you will either affect them for the better or they will affect you for the worse. So we need to be careful in these types of relationships. And either change the nature of the relationship or end it, whatever's appropriate. Let us consider from the example of the Jews in taking possession of Canaan. God told them to make no covenants with them, enter into no marriages with them, to have no close relationships with them, but they disobeyed. And the ungodly influence in those relationships led them astray just as it can happen to you. Consider King Solomon, the wisest man who walked this earth. He started out so well as a young king. Yet at the end of his life, the Bible says his heart was turned from God because of his wives. Even with all the wisdom that God gave Solomon, say he's the wisest fool, he still fell short because of his ungodly influence, the ungodly influence of his wives. Young men and young women today, you're in the audience. Some of you may be considering marriage one day. You need to recognize the great influence of close relationships and the influence that an unbelieving, uncommitted spouse can have on you. Choosing a spouse is an important decision. I'd say it's at least in the top five, maybe even top three decisions that you're going to make in your life, top three most important decisions you're going to make in your life. And so it should be approached with much consideration, much prayer, much guidance and counsel. Seek counsel of more mature Christians to help you in this decision. It can certainly save you a lot of heartache, despair later. Choosing to marry someone that isn't committed to following the commands of Christ, to follow Jesus as their Lord is flat out asking for trouble in your marriage. That is the definition of not being, un, uh, of being unequally yoked. For the two of you are not on the same path. You're not on the same spiritual path. There are enough difficulties and challenges that you will face in marriage. So knowingly entering into the marriage relationship with that difference just makes it that much harder. May we seriously consider the scriptures and ponder our close relationships 
and the nature of them and considering the changes that need to be made. We also have 1 Corinthians 15 for our consideration, which says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul says here not to fool ourselves, not to deceive ourselves. Don't confuse yourselves into thinking that you can maintain relationships, maintain evil relationships, and not be effective. The company you keep influences you. As the Bible says here, morally bad relationships can corrupt or ruin you. Ideally, your Christian influence would be a light. It would be a light in their lives and would overpower that darkness. Peter speaks on this in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, when he speaks of Christian wives that are married to an unbelieving husband. He doesn't instruct the believing spouse to put an end to the relationship. No, that is not scriptural, to end a marriage relationship like that. No, he tells the Christian spouse to remain in the marriage, for she has an opportunity to win over that unbelieving spouse by the pure lifestyle that she lives before him. And that is the case for any Christian that's in a marriage right now with an unbeliever. You have an opportunity to win that person over. And I've seen that happen. Another congregation we used to attend. The unbelieving husband attended, 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 and after a number of years, became a Christian by seeing the example of his wife. And that's encouraging. And so we know it's possible, and that is what Peter teaches here. But we see here that it's also in this passage that it is possible that your positive influence is what reaches that person and changes them, but it is also possible that you will be influenced to be just as they are, to act just as they act, to speak just as they speak, to live just as they live, and that is to your detriment. This is clearly applicable in relationships with people but it is applicable to all things that can have an influence on us. Consider the things that you read. Consider the things that you see. Consider the things that you hear. I think of things that can, or things that can have an influence on you. I think of things we watch on TV. I think of movies. I think of uh, social media and its influence. Just this past week, there were Senate hearings, if you're watching the news, Senate hearings where an ex-Facebook employee testified about the harm that Facebook and Instagram has done to children and to society. The influence of media like that and its influence, it's clear. We shouldn't be deceived or confused by it. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. We need to be on guard with these influences because there are so many things that can have a negative influence on us and push us to sin. One area that I've personally had to deal with this it's music. As a teenager growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, I was really into rap music. Now, if you search, you can find some good, clean, positive rap music out there. But that's not the kind of music that I was listening to at that time. I was listening to music that had the parental advisories across the front because of the foul language, because of the content of the music. 
I wasn't a Christian then, so it, it never offended my conscience. I never had a problem with it. However, I was baptized in college, December 8, 1996. But even then, as a new Christian, I didn't see that as an area of my life that needed work. Plenty of other problems I had to deal with. Plenty of other things where I was wrong. That's just music. I didn't need to address that area. There's no influence that music had on me. So you fast forward a number of years, and you know I went from cassette tapes to CDs, and now I got a phone where I can have all my music on it. I had all kinds of music on my phone, all kinds of playlists, but I had playlists with a lot of that vulgar music on it, a lot of that vulgar music that I grew up listening to. My attitude had always been, it's just music. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect who I am. It doesn't affect my behavior. I just enjoy listening to the beat, enjoy listening to the music. That's all it is. But being honest with myself, I realize it does affect me. It did affect me. And eventually, those lyrics, that foul language, that content that I listen to over and over and over while I'm driving, hanging out at the house, that stuff bathing in my mind, going through my ears, staying on my mind, songs that were committed to memory with no effort. Eventually, those words started to make their way into my vocabulary. That foul language was not fitting for a Christian to speak, and I knew it. And I didn't need those influences in my life. And it was time to drive them away. I had to delete those songs from my playlist. Delete those songs off my phone. Get rid of those CDs because that was not the kind of stuff that I needed to be listening to. Now, I'll admit, it took me a long time to realize that. It took me a long time to address that area of my life. It continued to linger on for many years after I first became a Christian. To my detriment. You can say I'm embarrassed by that. Why didn't you know better? Plenty of other problems to address. And I never considered that an area that needed to be addressed. I say similar to the Canaanite, similar to the Israelites who didn't see the need to address or follow God's command in driving people out. I looked at my own life and saw other areas I need to deal with, didn't see a problem with that. But finally, I recognized the need for growth. I recognized the need for change. And I recognized God's expectation for my continual growth and putting away things or influences that could drive me to sin, and I dealt with it. So as you live your Christian life, as you continue to pursue the right kind of relationships, as you continue to purge those things from your life that you know are ungodly, that you know are Christ-like, you can know that you are on the path that is pleasing to God, continually growing, continually evolving, and continually uh, becoming better, putting away those things that influence you to sin. Now, I want you to realize this path is a never-ending path. It is a never-ending path that is a pursuit of righteousness that continues until the day you die. There is always room for improvement. If anyone thinks they've made it, I can already tell you, yeah, you got a long way to go too. We should always be moving to be more like Christ and never content with where we're at today. And if you're alive, there's more work to do. So let us all press on 
and encourage one another as we go down this path of life. And it encourages me to know that there are others striving to walk this path of righteousness, to pursue righteousness just like I am. It encourages me to be a part of the church, congregation of brothers and sisters who are striving to do that. You know, just recently I had to travel for work with a couple co-workers, two co-workers. We had to go up to Oklahoma City for a couple days of work. One of them I've traveled with before. He knows me well. He knows the type of person I am. He's observed my character. But the other person didn't. He didn't know me well. And so when the company rented the car, we were all going to ride together, put the car in my name. So this other, the person who didn't know me, he was a little concerned because he was going to be hostage. He's going to be riding wherever I went, riding wherever I chose to go. So we're going to be spending a lot of time together, riding up there to Oklahoma City together, riding back. Every time we went out to eat at night, when we went to work together, he was going to be with me. So a few days before our trip, he called me. He said, we need to have a discussion. I need to understand exactly who you are. I need to know who I'm traveling with. And I was kind of surprised. Okay, where is this going? What do you mean? He said, are you a party animal? Are you looking to get out every night after work? Are we hitting bars every night? Are we drinking every night? Are we going to some places that uh, shouldn't be mentioned? I just need to know who you are. And I, I kind of laughed. I said, well, good question. No, I'm not. You don't have to worry about that. That's not who I am. He was relieved. He told me, hey, I, I got all that stuff out of my system years ago and not interested in participating in it. So I just wanted to know. Because otherwise, I'd maybe have to rent another car. But I commended him for that. And I was glad to hear that he was concerned about that. I enjoy traveling with people like that. It's not my style, and I was glad to travel with this gentleman. He wanted to know where I stood on some things. Well, in the same way, our fellowship here in the church is like that. It's encouraging when we come together. It is encouraging to know that we are all looking to Jesus for salvation, that we are all striving to live a life that is pleasing to God. It is encouraging to know that I'm not the only one. I may have had a rough week, a rough Monday, a rough Tuesday, and I come in here on Wednesday, and I see other brothers. I see Greg, I see Brent, I see Shane, I see Zoe, I see Sammy. I see many other men who I know they are striving to be godly men, godly husbands, godly fathers. And I'm encouraged that we're all walking that same path. It's encouraging to know that we are pursuing many of the same things. And because of God's word, I know where they stand. And through our fellowship, we have the opportunity to build up and encourage one another. That is a great benefit and a great blessing that we have here in the church. And I encourage you to strive to develop relationships so that you too can be encouraged along the way. I say there's strength in numbers, there's strength in knowing that you're not the only one. You're not the only one living this life and trying to do better. We can build up one another, and there's much benefit to that. That really brings me to the conclusion of the things I had to say on this subject. I know I talked about what I said, the consequences of disobedience, and I think they were clear. We saw of the Israelites failing to fully obey, and then we look to Scripture today scripture that talks to us about our relationships, about our influences, about things that we need to put out of our lives so we can either be obedient to God's command and strive to do that, 
or we can suffer the consequences that go along with that, allowing sin to continue to linger, reign in our lives, to bring us down. It's to your detriment. It's not to your good. So I encourage you, may you have the desire and strength to do what is pleasing to God. And so at this, at this time, we will offer the invitation to anyone that has a desire to respond, whether it is to obey the gospel, to become a Christian today, the water's ready, we're always ready to baptize anyone who has a desire, or if there's just a desire you want to make of the church, you can certainly make that known by coming to the front as we stand and sing the invitation song. Wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can 